Johnny Utsman hand grenades the engine. It detonates right at the start-finish line. If you don't like that kind of racing, don't even watch. You would probably say, ah, yeah, short track races. Can you tell me what you felt inside the car when that tire failed? How? And then it went into the wall. He's just a dipshit, you know? I mean, the way he races, I don't know how he's ever won a championship, and I'm just sick and tired. I mean, that's why everybody's fighting him and running him down. And... This one's for every one of those fans in the stands that pull for me every week and take all the bullshit from everybody else. Cody Stewart, your winner at the Brickyard. I'm sitting here searching high and low for the new Atlanta haters out there. The ones that, as soon as the news broke that Atlanta was going to be reconfigured, they had something to say, and that something was usually negative, and it usually had a bunch of expletives thrown in there, too. I'm looking for those people. I can't find them anywhere after Sunday's race. I don't know if they went into hiding, if they had a change of heart, or what? But if you think that Sunday's race was anything less than epic, granted that's subjective, but if you think Sunday's race was anything less than epic, I truly feel sorry for you. What's up, everybody? My name is Ryan Penta, and this is the Lucky Dog Podcast. We have made it all the way to episode number five, Cinco. And this week, you guessed it, we're going to go over the epic race that was the Ambetter 400 at Atlanta Motor Speedway. Shout out Marcus Smith. He's the guy that reconfigured the track. And then from there, we're actually going to, I want to talk about two teams specifically this week in particular. I want to talk about Front Row Motorsports, and I want to talk about Trackhouse Racing. So we'll get into that after we get into the race. We're going to have our sad dog of the week. Hint, hint, it's Stuart Haas Racing, so stick around for that. This weekend, we got the guys going to Las Vegas, which is personally one of my favorite tracks. And with the next-gen car, it's a lot of people's favorite tracks these days. It's right up there with the homesteads and the Kansases of the world, I think, as far as overall sentiment for Las Vegas. But we got to talk Atlanta first, so let's get right into it. So what we saw first, out, right out of the gate, was Joey Logano getting popped for having pie plates as gloves. <laughs> Not literally, but Logano was spotted on camera with webbed gloves instead of the normal driving gloves. Now, for someone who doesn't watch racing, first of all, I don't think this is the podcast you want to dive into because I am no expert on any of this. But that being said, a normal driver's glove, we've all seen them before. There's no webbing in between the fingers, right? Well, Joey's had webbing in between the fingers. And you're probably asking yourself, well, why the heck would a webbed glove make any sort of difference inside a race car? Let me tell you, there is a small gap between the A-frame rail, that's the first bent rail you see on the top frame of the car, it's the front of the window. So in between that rail and the driver's net is a small space. I don't know ex the exact dimension of it. Let's say it's about four inches wide of just void, just ambient air going through there. 
Now, that gap actually allows air to seep into the car, especially at speed, and that air seeping into the car from that, <clears throat> that opening causes drag on the car, slows down the car. So in qualifying, you'll see drivers, especially at the plate tracks, mostly at the plate tracks, Daytona, Talladega, and now Atlanta, they'll put their hand into that void, right? Into that space in between the A-frame and the net, which is completely legal. I think last year at Daytona, everyone adopted that in qualifying. This year, not so much. It was The field was probably, I'd say, split, maybe closer to three quarters as far as who was doing the hand thing. So Penske and Joey Logano take it a step further, and they give Joey a glove that has webs on it, which covers, obviously, it's gonna, that's going to cover more surface area. It's going to block out more wind. It's going to cause less drag. The car is going to be able to go a little bit faster than everyone else. They got popped for it because there's in-car cameras that picked up on all this. And if you actually see the glove, it's, I, it's almost like they weren't trying to hide it. Who knows? Maybe they weren't. But here's the thing. With Penske being one of these huge, gigantic, juggernaut teams, they can eat this fine. So I think they knew what they were doing from the jump. They knew the risk that was involved. And they said, ah, screw it. We'll try to get away with it. Because again, I mean, that's NASCAR. If you're not cheating, you're not trying, right? Penske's been at the top of the game for a long, long time now, and that's not just because they have good drivers, okay? And at the time of recording, it was just dropped breaking news. Logano and Penske were docked a $10,000 fine for these gloves. That's chump change for Penske. I'm sure the wire's already been sent. So again, you live and you learn. Joey Logano, you can't wear webbed gloves to block out the air going into your car and causing drag. Plain and simple. Just stick to your normal gloves. So that was some drama before this shindig even started. So the big old glove was discovered during qualifying. And speaking of qualifying, Mike, Michael McDowell, after 467 starts, finally gets a pull. Mikey Waltrip, eat your heart out. I couldn't believe that when I saw that. I could have sworn, obviously I wasn't correct, but I could have sworn he's gotten a pole at a road course or two. But nope, it's after 467. Somebody do the math for me on how many laps that is. I'm not going to do it right now because me and math, nope. But that was amazing. And that, that's a testament to front row. And again, I, I, I alluded to it earlier. And we'll get into front row later on. But that, that's, that's not coincidence. That's not coincidence. I think qualifying tells a lot of the story as far as which teams can maintain their success throughout the season which teams are continuing to qualify on top. And again, I know it's only been two races and there are two plate tracks, but qualifying does tell the story in this instance, I truly believe. So we got Mikey McDowell on the pole. We got Joey Logano being $10,000 less richer. No skin off his back. And right into it, green flag drops. Bef right as we are getting up to speed, there's a big old wreck on lap two. It looks like Todd G, who was running third, another front row motorsports driver was running second or third, and he had to check up, which led to a chain reaction that the Clash would be jealous of. Cars stacked up in the back. Big old wreck. It looked like it was about 16 cars involved. Turns out to be the biggest wreck in Atlanta history. And the crazy thing is, and we'll talk about this sort of thing too, is a lot of these cars return, return to the race Instantly, I think C. Bell got collected in this one, unfortunately. He did try to go out and limp around, but I think he eventually went into the garage after about 100 laps or so. But everyone else involved in this wreck was virtually fine. 
and they stacked up in turn one. There were cars facing the other direction, and after a quick trip to the pits, they were back racing. Again, it's a lot. It's all to do with the next gen body, which we're going to get into later. But I, I, years ago, you'd see a wreck like that, and you'd say, "Okay, that's one, two, three, four, five. That's at least ten cars not returning to the race." Not this day and age, which I like. Early on in this race, it was a tale of the big dogs. We had Kyle Busch and Kyle Larson swapping the lead back and forth for the probably the first felt like 10, 15 minutes, excuse me, of this race. And then throughout the first stage, there'd be Michael McDowell coming from the pole, leading the race. Again, front row. They maintained their consistency this entire afternoon. I was very impressed with front row motorsports all afternoon. One thing that got my juices flowing was seeing Denny Hamlin and Kyle Busch kind of race race each other pretty hard. You know, brings back old memories. I love seeing the big dogs eat. You know what I mean? The Denny Hamlins of the world, the Kurt Bushes of the world, Brad Kozlowski's, the Loganos. I like to see all these seasoned vets that have a run of success under their belt still continuing to get after it and dueling each other. It's kind of like a heavyweight title fight. So anytime... I see any one of those, any two, three, four of those guys battling for position, I'm locked in because one day, ladies and gentlemen, those guys aren't going to be here. Yes, we'll have a new crop of drivers that we can all fall in love with and or hate, but these guys, the classics, the Keselowskis, the Bushes of the world, you know, they're not going to be around forever. So I always try to hone in when I see the big dogs eaten, for lack of a better term. And even though he may not be a, Big dog on the racetrack. He's a big dog in our Lord and Savior's heart. That's Michael McDowell, who from the pole takes stage one. Again, front row motorsports being prevalent throughout this entire afternoon. I really don't think it's a coincidence. Now, at the end of the, towards the end of stage one, I'll backtrack a little bit, getting back to the Hamlin and Bush thing. We actually saw these two Jamokes get into each other, which again brought back all the memories. Love seeing these guys mix it up. But somehow, Hamlin spins out, and I believe it was coming into stage two. He's back up to second place. Again, just a testament to the next-gen car. I mean, he did a 360 on the track. I believe he tapped the wall. Prior generations, he would, at best, would have came back 20, 30 laps later without a front end, just running laps for fun and points at that point. But nope, you blink, and he's in second place. I couldn't believe it. Now, I wish you could blink and Fox would be done with their goddamn commercials, but alas, here we are. I should have timed the length of time it took from the spin with that involved Hamlin and the start of stage two because it felt like an eternity and there was nothing but commercials to fill that up. We went back to the track once for the pits and then Fox couldn't get out of there quick enough to get to another commercial break. You're going to hear me harp on Fox all year long because this is not going to change. Probably not the healthiest way to go about it, but who cares? This isn't just podcast. This is therapy, okay? Early on in stage two, we had Todd Gilliland. Again, front row motorsports. They're, they are now acting like their name states. Todd Gilliland takes the lead early in stage two. And he stuck around there for pretty much the entire race. He wasn't just a pest in this race. He was a force. There was 
constant times where you'd look at the TV screen and there'd be that red 38 behind Kyle Busch, pushing him along, fighting for the lead. It was borderline inspirational watching Front Row just kick ass all day. It really was. Ford stayed dominant. Words, Ryan. Dominant. Noun. Adjective? Verb? Who knows? Either way, Ford stayed dominant for most of this race. And that continued when Joey Logano came from the back. Because remember, he had the penalty, so he had to go to the back of the field to start the race. Logano comes out of nowhere to take the lead. And again, this is another one of those big dogs that you're going to hear me talk about all season long. This is the type of driving that make that allows you to win championships. It's no coincidence he has two championships, maybe a third on the way. But to see that yellow four just barrel through the field, lap after lap after lap to get to the front, I would not want to be in his way in any track, man. He is a different animal when he gets strapped up. It's truly riveting to watch when he's in. You can tell when Joey's in a mood out there, you know what I mean? When Joey's in a mood. And that car turns into a missile, a controlled missile. <laughs> you know you, you know he's going for it. It's all or nothing at that point. And that was Logano for most of stage two. Towards the end of stage two, we had our first, and this was interesting, we had our first batch of green flag pit stops. Now, obviously, we all know Atlanta changed, or NASCAR changed the pit road speeds for Atlanta. So when you first get on pit road, which starts in the back stretch, now it's 90 miles an hour. And then I believe when you get to about turn, like maybe the beginning or the middle of turn four, it's when it, you got to slam down to 45 for pit road speed. So you go from 90 to 45. So you cut your speed in half. This is not something the drivers are really accustomed to. They're not really used to this. Now, I'm, I don't feel bad for them, they're all professionals. But we, we saw pretty early on that there needed to be some adjustment for these drivers, and I'm not holding their feet to the fire on any of this. But we did have a lot of speeding penalties come out of that first green flag pit stop. We had Stenhouse, Bush, Bubba Wallace, Ross Chastain, and Josh Berry all get docked with speeding through pit road penalties. Is there anything NASCAR can do about this? I really don't think so. I think the drivers do need to just adjust to it because it's obviously not impossible because not everybody got speeding penalties on Sunday. I just think this is one of these unique aspects of a very unique track. And drivers, like I said, are going to have to adjust, and I believe they will. And it also, I mean, not to be a selfish fan here, but it just makes for a better show. I mean, look no further than William Byron and Michael McDowell getting into it. You know, McDowell locks up his brakes trying to go from 90 to 45. He ends up hitting Byron, both go a lap down. You know, that's just something you got to be cognizant of going forward, drivers. Don't take it out on us. And to close out stage two, we had our friend Joey Logano, who suddenly, as the temp started to fall, his car got a little tight. So Logano plows tight right up the racetrack in turn one, taps Busher, who taps the wall, who gets back into Joey. Joey is done for the day. And this is a tough stretch to start the season for Logano. Obviously, I think you can get out of it. But I think this is why we saw when the schedule came out last year for this season, we saw a lot of head scratching as to why is there back to black, excuse me, back to back plate tracks to start the season with Daytona and Atlanta. 
And this instance right here is why teams were scratching their head because now Penske and Logano have to dig themselves out of a hole. Now, they got the man for the job. Obviously, he's one of the best to ever do it, but it's still a hole that they need to get out of. So I look at other teams like all of Stuart Haas Racing is in a gigantic hole after these two races. It's going to be very, very tough for them to recover coming out of that. But the winner of stage two goes to Joey Logano's teammate, Austin Sindrick. Yep, another Ford. So that's Ford, back-to-back stages. Stage one, McDowell. Stage two, Sindrick. This new body style works, guys, at least for these play tracks. We'll obviously get a much better, maybe finite understanding in Vegas because it's an intermediate track. Over the first two weeks of the season, Ford has come to fucking play, and I'm here for it. Now, going into stage three, the story was going to be that track temps were going to drop because the sun was going down, things were going to get a lot cooler, grip was going to start to emerge, and guys were going to start sliding around less, and that's exactly what happened. But a lot of the story, aside from towards the end, which we'll obviously get into, a lot of the story for me for stage three was Todd G. Sorry. Yeah, Todd Gilliland, my guy, if you couldn't tell, my guy was up front for most of stage three. This was, again, I've been pumping his tires. You can enjoy the hell out of that pun, but I've been pumping his tires this this whole episode, and but rightfully so. He was, he's been up front, and he's not usually up front. I'm going to give the guy his flowers. One notable thing that I want you all to keep an eye on is about halfway through stage three, everyone's favorite, Ross Chastain, got into Chase Elliott, but he got into him into the corner, sending him flying. Again, it appeared like much ado about nothing. My opinion, Ross, and I like Ross, Ross did look to be driving maybe a little too aggressive given the situation of bumping the guy going into a corner, which is a big no-no. Again, I didn't hear much from Chase after it, though. He didn't, I don't, he didn't point any blame at him or anything like that. Who knows? Maybe he's suppressing it and just waiting for his time, or maybe this just blows over. Again, just something I, I just want to keep an eye on as the season goes. Anytime Elliot and Chastain are near each other, I think it's going to be fireworks. With 49 laps to go, these crazy assholes go four wide into turn one for the lead. Let me say that again. They went four wide into turn one at Atlanta for the lead. This was epic. This was appointment viewing. This got me off the couch. I know it got you off the couch too. Syndra comes out of that. I don't want to call it a melee because they all did fantastic in stacking up and getting straight. But Syndra comes out of that four wide. It was just amazing to see four cars stacked up into a corner where there was literally no room for anything else. <laughs> there was no room for activities, right? And credit to these guys, and I'll touch on this for the end of the race too, credit to these guys for not wrecking right there. Okay, the truck shenanigans circus can take a lot from the cup guys. And I know that the truck guys hear that all the time, but it's true. There's a reason why these guys are at the top or at the pinnacle. There's a reason why a lot of these guys stay around 20, 30, 35 years because they're the best in the world behind a steering wheel. 
look no further than going 180 miles an hour with three other cars surrounded around you. A hornet's nest is putting that lightly. And they executed. So hat tip to all involved there. Lap 220, we saw another wreck. And if you haven't noticed by now, I've skipped a few of the wrecks. There was a lot of cautions in this race. I think we all saw that going in. But that, to me, didn't diminish the product on screen at all or on track at all. It may have for some, you know, some people, they like a clean race from flag to flag. That's impossible, especially at a place like Atlanta. But I think all things considered, yes, there were a lot of cautions, but it wasn't just an absolute wreck fest. It wasn't a demolition derby. It wasn't like they were driving in figure eights out there. It was just a product of the track. And I think the drivers did exceptional this whole afternoon. But we did have a notable wreck on lap 220. This was the one with Larson, Brad, and Corey LaJoy. And Brad just snapped loose on this one, collecting the other two guys. I don't... I'll be the first one to put blame on Brad Kozlowski at a play track. You can't put, I don't think you can put blame on him here. It was, again, just the nature of the beast. So he takes out Larson, right? Who unfortunately wrecks out, finishes finishes this race 32nd. And I believe it was Fox who dropped this interesting tidbit that Larson hasn't finished a new Atlanta race since it's been reconfigured. I thought that to be astounding. Again, I don't want to dive too much into this, but I think a track like this doesn't really suit a driver like Kyle Larson because he tends to get on, I don't want to use the word reckless at all, but he tends to take extra chances. And we, we've touched on this in previous episodes about Kyle Larson. But that might be the reason why. Who knows? I'm not strapped in there. They are. That's just my guess. And with about 25 to go, we saw Denny Hamlin in the lead. Now, Hamlin was running up front, I believe, for pretty much most of this race. You know, we didn't see that that fuel-saving strategy that the entire field took at Daytona. You know, Denny was very vocal on how BS that was. I'm not sure if this was just a spit in the face. He's like, I'm just going to hammer down and pin it all, all afternoon, and you can all follow me or not. Not really sure if that's the case. Boy can dream, can he? But still... 25 to go, Hamlin's taking the lead, spin right in the face of the D- Daytona strategy, just matting it to the ground this entire race. Unfortunately, we had Chase Briscoe running up front towards the end there, and he just, he looked like a bull in a goddamn China shop, I swear to God. He was putting that car into spots that you really can't put that car. He was aero blocking or trying to aero block, but failing miserably. And it got to a point where he just snapped loose and he collected Hamlin in the process. We got a red flag. Stoppage in play. Race restarts with 11 to go. Towards the front, we had Josh Berry, and I'm a big Josh Berry guy. But unfortunately, we saw Josh Berry get loose. It was one of those... Uh, this was just one of those bad racing deals again. I'll be the first to jump on a driver when he fucks up, but there really wasn't too many driver fuck-ups in this one for me to jump on. This, again, was just another bad racing deal. He just got into a bad aerospace, collected Josh Berry in the process. Bingo, bango. We got another wreck. Thankfully, this wasn't a red flag. Race restarts. Five to go. And with... Within this five-lap like shootout, if you will, there was about six different lead changes. They were going back and forth. We'd have Kyle Busch up front. I believe Bubba got up front there for a bit. Suarez was up front there. Blaney was up front there. 
And coming down to the white flag, we had Ryan Blaney, who at the time the white dropped, looked to be about three car lengths in front of everybody else. Coming around turns one and two, the pack tightened up. Here comes Kyle Busch and Daniel Suarez. All of a sudden, Kyle Busch goes to the middle. Suarez goes high. It looked like Bubba was going to push his buddy Ryan Blaney and help him win, but he slid up and actually helped to push Kyle Busch a little bit. But at that point, it was just literally a three-man race to the finish. And in one of the closest finishes in NASCAR history, .003 seconds to be exact, we had Trackhouse Racing's Daniel Suarez come out with the victory. You knew it was tight when we didn't know who the winner was until they were halfway through the backstretch on the cool-down lap. I thought that was awesome. So we had a three-wide... We had four-wide for the lead, about 50 laps prior, and we had a three-wide finish. Again, I can't remember a three-wide finish to save my life in a place that's not Daytona or Talladega. That's for damn sure. Again, this one got everyone up off their seats. This one put NASCAR on everyone's phone, albeit temporarily, probably but it still got everyone talking. And this is the type of racing that in a perfect world, we could have at every race at every track, but obviously that's impossible, right? But again, looking back now at the new Atlanta haters, for lack of a better term, and I get it. And this is, this is what makes this situation actually pretty tricky to kind of debate, if you will, is before the reconfiguration, Atlanta wasn't those tracks that everyone, drivers included, were harping on to change, to reconfigure. Atlanta was not on that list at all. I'm looking at you, Texas. I'm looking at you, Phoenix. Tracks like that are the tracks that these drivers and us fans want reconfigured. You know, but Atlanta, no, Atlanta always, through all these generations of cars, provided a damn good race for the most part. Can't be perfect every time. There has been some snoozers at Atlanta, just has, just like there's been some snoozers at literally every other racetrack on the circuit, Right? But now that we have a pretty big sample size of what this racing is, and from what I'm being told, it's only going to get better as the track surface wears down even more. How can you sit there and hate this type of racing? I could see if this was week in, week out. If this was week in, week out racing, and we got this sort of like chain racing, if you will, I don't want to fully call it a chain race. I, I leave that for Daytona and Talladega but the sort of parade runs that they do at those tracks, you know, and if that were to be the case at Atlanta, and if that were to be the case every week, then yeah, NASCAR would lose fans really, really quick. Okay. That's what makes this sport so great is we go to a track like Atlanta where it's balls to the wall, but there's actual passing, actual strategy, actual nuances involved, you know, and then weeks down the road, we'll go to a place like Bristol, which is completely different. And a week after, weeks after that, we'll go to a place like Pocono, which is completely different from the first two. That's what makes this sport so great. It's just the diversity of the racing tracks and the racing surfaces. And I think what Marcus Smith and SMI, what they've done with Atlanta specifically, because I do think that SMI have screwed the pooch on a couple other tracks. Bristol, <laughs> Roval, excuse me. I think they've hit a home run with this Atlanta track. And I think... Having this on the schedule twice a year is the right call. And I think having it as a playoff race is the right call. Okay, I don't care if they sell out or not. That's not what I'm interested in. Okay, I'm interested in if it's going to be a good race and if it's going to be a good product. 
two things that are that can be completely different from each other. But if you can nail both of those in one shot, then you're going to have an epic race, which is exactly what Sunday was. Just don't make every track like this, please. So to round out the top five of this epic race, I'm just going to keep calling it the epic race. Hashtag epic race. Got Daniel Suarez, Ryan Blaney, Kyle Busch, Austin Sindrick, and rounding up the top five is Bubba Wallace, who's off to a great start this year. Suck it, Bubba haters. But after that race, I don't know if I needed a drink, a joint, all the above. I needed something. I needed a breather. I think we all did. That was heart pounding. Now you heard me ride the fronts all show long about front row motorsports. And there's a reason for that. It's because, and again, I wanted to talk about them specifically. Front row motorsports. I know we only have a two week sample size of this, but again, going, getting back to the qualifying, telling the story of where they are now, right? I truly believe we can look at that qualifying results from Daytona and Atlanta and say, Hey, They've made improvements since last year. They've certainly made improvements since years previous. We started to see kind of not the come up, but kind of their trajectory start to turn in the upward motion, if you will, last year with McDowell's win at uh, Indy. But I think this year we're going to see, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Mike McDowell in victory lane sometime this year. And I don't, I don't think that's a hot take at all whatsoever. And I'm not just talking about a road course. I really want to see them get one at an intermediate. That would be splendid. And I'm not trying to come off as like this front row fanboy. Truthfully, I'm not. I, I, I've said it in the past. I don't have a favorite driver. I really don't have a favorite team. But I do appreciate when teams from the back of the pack start to make improvements and impose themselves towards the front and continue to grow on that success. It's... It's the American dream, isn't it? You know, the small guy turns into the big guy. You know, a lot of different variables in the middle of that, but that's pretty much the story, right? You start out small, you end up big, everyone's happy. It makes for a good story. That's what Front Row Motorsports appears to be doing so far. Now, hey, I could have yoke on my face as early as next week and both front row cars could finish in the back and it's all doom and gloom from there. But again... From what we've been presented so far, Front Row Motorsports appears like they are here to fucking play. The other team I wanted to talk about real quick in this episode was Trackhouse Racing. You know, and I'm honestly talking results aside. Obviously, it's beneficial for that team that Daniel Suarez gets a win. It is also very beneficial for Daniel Suarez because there's been rumors of him being on the hot seat and, you know, that seat might be kept warm for Shane Van Gisbergen. Who knows? We'll never know until contracts get renewed and moves are made, but we can sit here and speculate all we want. So not only was it good for Suarez and Trackhouse, but I wanted to talk about just the overall vibe of Trackhouse. I think it is so refreshing what Trackhouse has been able to do, specifically what Justin Marks has been able to do. We all know Justin's story. You know, he was a racer in NASCAR for a little bit. He did sports car racing. He was able to pretty much twist Chip Ganassi's arm into selling him his race team, change it to Team Trackhouse. There was a lot more moving parts in that, but that's just the layman's version of it. So Trackhouse comes on the scene with Justin Marks, and from the jump, you could tell that they were 
They were here to stay. This wasn't a flash in the pan type thing. This this certainly wasn't a start park type thing, you know. But I just love the swag of Trackhouse, and you you saw it, you know, as soon as Suarez won the other day, when Justin Marks, who is rightfully so, understandably so, decked out head to toe in his Trackhouse gear. Justin, if you want to send me one of those Trackhouse hats, I won't mind. That thing's sick, you know. And he's sitting there, and he's pointing at the camera, pointing to the Trackhouse logo. I love shit like that. And then he gets off camera, you know, because there's a fine line there, right? You don't want to be the owner that's all up in the camera's face while your driver is trying to be the one reaping all the success. You know what I mean? We've seen that in the past before with certain drivers. Chris Rice, Cully Gracing, excuse me. Um, but, you know, with Trackhouse, they have this vibe that just comes off as genuine. And there's also this 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 family vibe, which I'll always love. You saw it with Chastain going right to Suarez right at the end of the race, congratulating him, not being a pissy teammate because he didn't get the win. No, he was right there celebrating with his teammate. How genuine is it? I don't know. It's, makes for great optics. And I think it's just another aspect of what makes Trackhouse so unique. And I'd love to see a lot more teams kind of adopt this this way of thinking, this atmosphere to just kind of like let loose and not necessarily let the cards fall, but but be the one that reshuffles the deck. You know what I mean? For lack of a better term, you know, they're rewriting how this whole NASCAR thing is. I really, truly think. I mean, Justin Marks is here to fucking stay. He's not going anywhere. He loves motorsports. He just bought a MotoGP team. I wouldn't be surprised if a couple years down the road, we have a track house Formula One team. Sorry, Andretti. It's probably too too soon for that. I apologize, but but I think Trackhouse is just great, great, great for this sport. It it's a good. I don't know if that comedy is the word, but it's a good antagonist, if you will, to you know a Hendrick Motorsports or a Penske Motorsports who are buttoned up, clean cut. You know they're like the New York Yankees of NASCAR, if you will. You know, clean shaven, not literally, but clean shaven, buttoned up, very comes off very white collar. And I'm not saying Trackhouse is some, you know, gaggle of rednecks that are just hooting and tooting, you know, driving fast cars. No, not even close. You know, they're cerebral, they're tactical, and they, you see it week in, week out with, you know, Chastain running up front every week. Suarez didn't have a great year last year, obviously already rebounded, and again, it's going to be interesting to see his situation going forward. I still think he needs another win to solidify that seat because I do think that is SV, SVG's seat going forward. Barring any sort of epic collapse from SVG, I don't see that happening. <laughs> that guy is talented. But again, getting back to the team in and of itself, Trackhouse Racing is fantastic for NASCAR. I think the more success we see with them, the better off. I think all of NASCAR is going to be, honestly, I think Trackhouse is important for NASCAR. You know, just there again, getting back to their vibe and their swag. It's just not something that we've seen from cup teams in the past. And I think this sort of thing is what's going to drive younger eyeballs onto the product. Younger eyeballs means more money and more popularity for the sport. And I think that's what we all want. So, Hat tip to Front Row Motorsports and Team Trackhouse this week. Now we go from the good to the not so good. We got the sad dog of the week. And I next week I'm going to have some audio for the sad dog of the week. That way we don't just awkwardly transition into it. <laughs> but this week's sad dog of the week is Stuart Haas, Racing, Stuart Haas Racing as a whole. 
They seem to be a team that can't get out of their own way, and I don't know what the fix is. I've said it in earlier episodes. I don't think Tony Stewart's a great talent evaluator. Yes, he's a great race car driver, and he's a decent, at best, race team owner. But I think a lot of their success was strung to the talent of Kevin Harvick. You know, if Kevin Harvick was successful, the rest of SHR was successful. Well, with Harvick gone now, we're starting to see the void that is Stuart Haas Racing. Okay, we saw, alluded to it earlier, Briscoe looking like a bull in a china shop out there. Priest not being able to get results. Josh Berry, the verdict's still out on him. I'll be fair to Josh Berry. And Noah Gragson, I think, is a was a good pickup for them. I don't know if Stuart Haas Racing is a good pickup for Gregson. I could be wrong. We're still very early into the season. But I just don't see how Stuart Haas Racing can get out of this funk. And it doesn't help that they got popped for the frame rails too. Okay, the 10 and the 41 car got popped for some funky roof rails that got both the 10 and the 41 docked 35 driver and owner points. So... On top of the poor results that Stuart House Racing has had up until this point, now the 10 and the 41 get docked 35 points. I think this puts Gregson at negative six points going into week three of the season. That's a hole you can't climb out of unless you just roll through a string of wins, which it could happen. But I also could drive in the Daytona 500 next year too. Okay, you know what I mean? So... Stuart House Racing, sad dog of the week. They've just been piss poor from top to bottom. Looking ahead to this week, we got Las Vegas, which I said earlier is one of my favorite tracks on the circuit. Even before the next-gen car, this track has usually provided some pretty damn good racing, a lot of strategy and fuel saving involved in past generations of cars, not so much this year. But it's a 1.5 intermediate, which is the wheelhouse for this next-gen car, so I'm expecting another great race. I urge everyone not to look at the forecast for Las Vegas this Sunday. There might be some fucking snow in the forecast, but we'll keep our fingers crossed. Hopefully we get racing on Sunday. A lot to look forward to. Obviously, we got qualifying on Saturday, and that'll set the field, and then I'll be able to gamble appropriately. <laughs> I don't gamble to quali till after qualifying. Yeah, I almost called it quali. Fight me. <laughs> Find us on anywhere on social media: Instagram, TikTok, Twitter at the Lucky Dog Pod. That's for Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Like I've said in the past, I'll be getting a Facebook page soon, so we can have community chats and all that fun stuff. Also, be getting YouTube going. If you want to leave a voicemail and talk about anything NASCAR, we can talk about. Last week's Atlanta race, we can talk about this week's Vegas race, we can talk about literally anything you want, who your favorite driver was and why. I'm here for it. 508-657-4471. Again, that's 508-657-4471. Leave a voicemail to the Lucky Dog Podcast. We really want to hear from you NASCAR fans out there. I've been saying it since day one. I want to make this show as interactive for you guys as possible. So that means hearing from you, getting you guys involved in episodes, maybe getting a co-host from one of you crazy assholes down the road. Who knows? I'm, you know, leaving all stones unturned here. But I want to make this as interactive as possible because at the heart of it, what makes NASCAR so great is us. 
<laughs> the fans. You know what I mean? It really is. Yes, obviously the drivers and the product that's on TV every week is a big caveat to it. Without that, there is no NASCAR. Sure. But I think what makes NASCAR so great and so unique is just the fans. There is this kind of family aspect of going to a race. You know, you talk to you go to a you go to a NASCAR race and you you never met the guy next to you and by the end of it you guys are best friends. You know? Why? Because you're having a good time watching a damn good sport and getting entertained all the while. You can't beat that. I love this shit, if you couldn't tell. That's why I do a shitty podcast every week on it. <laughs> Again, thank you for tuning in to the Lucky Dog at the Lucky Dog Pod anywhere on social media you can find us. Looking forward to Vegas. We'll see you all next week. I love you. Bye.